Robin, it is wonderful to have you on 20 Questions With. I met you first at the Harrogate Literary Festival in Yorkshire and thoroughly enjoyed your company. I want to interview you for this podcast because I've got so many more questions to ask. I'm going to start by asking you about last year, because this year you've been travelling the world. Last year you were travelling the country and that spawned, although not intentionally, your book Bibliomaniac. So tell us why you toured the bookshops of Britain and give us a sense of the book as well. Well, I get I, I'm one of those people who gets lots of manic ideas very, very quickly. And if I can get them uh, operating within the 30 seconds in which I'm still intrigued by the idea, then off I go. And so it was really it was I was meant to be doing a big tour with Brian Cox, the arena shows, which we've since done uh, this autumn. And and because we postponed that, I thought oh, I, I can't be at a loose end. If I mean, uh, I'm at a loose end now, you know, we're recording this just before Christmas and I've just stopped having a very manic period of time and, and I find that very very difficult so I needed to create a manic uh, adventure and I thought well I'll go to some independent bookshops because I love independent bookshops I'll do it to promote uh, my previous book The Importance of Being Interested and, and then I was going to like three bookshops a day it was all by public transport so I was meeting lots of intriguing people and drunk people and uh, eccentric people and people giving me cakes and um, as that went on I got more and more people saying I wish this was a book and I was sceptical about whether it was a book. And then Richard Osman tweeted that he wished it was a book. And of course, that then really gives a lot more impetus to a publisher to say, oh, this should be a book, because uh, we can have a quote from Richard Osman on the top of it. Um, and then I started writing. It's the quickest book I've ever written. It was I started writing it on the 4th of January this year, and I was about 40,000 words over by the 29th uh, because it was, I mean, I love books so much. I love all the ideas in them. I love bookshop people and I love people I meet in bookshops and trying to get that. It was meant to be a shorter book, and but I could I could have written a 200,000 uh, word book on this easily, but I got it down to 80,000. But it was just, you know, I wanted to write a book that was a, a celebration. I wanted to write a book that, you know, we've got so many negative voices that are amplified way too high. And I think it's very, very, you know, we watch this with things like the way the Meghan Markle story unfolds. There is an incredible level of spitefulness and sneering that is all around us. And I wanted to create something that was uh, kind of inclusive and, and filled with love, really. So what did you learn about your country during this tour? Well, it's interesting because, of course, in one way, because I've spent 30 years touring the country, uh, it, you know, I've, I've, this is one of the things that I love about the job that I've had, which is you get to a small town. You initially feel slightly threatened by the small town. You know, it's very much like for, the, for those of us old enough to remember the Incredible Hulk series of the 1970s, for those even older who remember the series The Fugitive with David Jansen, and for those in between who remember The Invaders, and for someone like you, Littlest Hobo, it is that beautiful thing that if you open yourself up in a strange place, you will find people come towards you and you will find that you meet people with incredible, you know, a lot of people often say, I don't have any stories. I don't have anything to tell. And then the longer that you're with them, you see that they have stories that they don't even know a story. So that's, that's the first thing, which is in every small town is this incredible, you know, not even tree forest of stories. And also that it's very easy to look at the, you know, I, I think our newspapers create a very cliched vision of the country. And I think also you see that when Grayson Perry did his excellent series on class on Channel 4 a few years ago, I think it was Channel 4, you see that thing that if you don't patronise people, people raise their game. People are so used to being patronised that they're ready to behave like that way that they used to on TV shows like That's Life, where there's a quirky old woman who's there doing a dance and showing her knickers or whatever. Um, actually, people are, as well as perhaps some of them wanting to do that, they it's almost like that's how they expect to be portrayed. And once you treat people intelligently, you find out how smart people are. 
Describe to us the different challenges of playing to or performing in front of a, a very small audience. And some of the audiences you'd have had in these bookshops would have been quite small and playing in front of a massive arena. It's funny you ask that because, I mean, this year I've played, I think the largest number of people I've played to was 14,000 at the O2. And that's a very, like, at the side of the stage with Rusty, who's our, uh, uh, was, was the kind of stage manager, it, I'm just having a chat with him. And then I hear Brian Cox go, and now my friend Robin Ince. And I go on, bah, 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 bah. and then I go back and go, yeah, actually another film that I really like, Rusty. <laughs> um, and it's straight, whereas, so it's a very different form of performance. I mean, it's exciting in its own way, but it doesn't have to be the excitement of standing in. Like Margate, I think, was probably the smallest bookshop. They could fit 12 people in if I hung off the side of a stairwell, which I did to fit those other two people in. Um and you are able to prop. I feel properly connect with people. You can actually see their reactions. You can get a sense of like there was one woman when I was doing a, a book festival who she was. I think I think she was ninety two years old. And she was sat at the front and she had those a face that was basically conducting where I went. I would keep looking at her face and I'd see the way the eyebrows were, were moving. I think oh do you know what I think I'm going to go and talk about the stones of Kalanish now. Oh do you know what I think perhaps talk about the possibility of life beyond the planet Earth. And it was so. And I just watched her differences of excitement, uncertainty, perhaps sometimes almost, oh, am I teetering towards boredom? And then afterwards she came up to me and she went, um, when I was uh, when I was, I was I was young, I wasn't allowed to study science. I um, I had to study three languages, two of them dead, and then I had to go into the diplomatic corps. But uh, now I'm 92 and I love science. And uh, so that's what excites me. And, you know, that you so you you get and it's a real mixture of people as well. You know, I would get seven year olds in that audience. I would get 95 year olds in that audience. I will get people who are doctors in that audience i will get people who are farm laborers in that audience you know it's uh and that's what i love is i love that, that there is a real democracy because also a lot of people are coming in because they love the people who run the bookshop because bookshops are such a they're such a great place you know an independent shop is so much more than just a place where people go and buy things it can be more challenging, in my experience, playing playing or performing in front of a smaller audience than a big audience. Because at a big audience, mm -hmm. there's almost a sense of occasion built into it. A smaller audience, sometimes you have to work to create that sense of occasion. I, I'm wondering whether it's a big or a small audience, whether some of your gigs, you just feel it's all clicking. It's coming together. You know they're loving it. You're loving it. It's brilliant. And other times where you have to work that much harder to pick up the momentum. Well, it's also, it's an interesting thing since I've started doing Bibliomaniac stuff, which is... Because I spent years working as a comic, there are some nights where if I haven't heard enough laughs, I wonder if they've been bored, even if, in fact, some of the stories I'm saying are not funny stories. So there's always a little critical voice, which I've managed to get a quarter and quarter through uh, through medication, amongst other things. And um, and it's like I, I did an event for Newham Bookshop, fantastic uh, independent bookshop run by Vivian for many years at the Wanstead Tap. And that was the first event I think I'd done or one of the first ones. And I was a bit worried that it had not been it just hadn't had the energy that I needed. And then afterwards, the feedback I was getting from people in terms of the way it had emotionally hit them. And that's what I'd forgotten, which is a lot of what I was saying. And I was kind of almost worried about, you know, oh, am I being too serious? People had taken in, you know, there was there was a woman who came up to me who said, I've not come to one of your shows for 10 years because the last time I came to one of your shows, when I got home, my father had died and it was just too much. And she could come up to me and she opened up because I ended up talking for some reason quite a lot about mortality. And, I, and, and I'd realised that it had been a hugely successful show in one way, in a way that I, you know, my, my comedy mind was like going, not enough gags. 
but actually to me it's far more emotional connection i i, th- I think comedy sometimes can not demean us but there is that thing that when in a lot of the club circuit you have to have gag after gag after gag and sometimes i watch acts who've been getting a laugh every 10 seconds and then they tell a longer story and people just no right that's it no, they can't be bothered to listen anymore and i hate that because i think you know the most exciting thing is not making people laugh non-stop it's seeing that people are always leaning forward and they want to hear the next thing and they are totally engaged and in fact you can laugh throughout the night but at the same time not be totally engaged and you can sometimes be quite silent and actually be fully engaged that said laughter is this incredibly powerful thing isn't it it's a way that we can come together it's a way that you can communicate and connect with people instantaneously it's a wonderful thing in challenge in a challenging world and in challenging times being able to make people laugh and being able to create an atmosphere around that is just it's almost priceless isn't it well especially when it is a laugh of generosity when it is a laugh i mean one of the things that i've got in the last few years increasingly kind of frustrated by is all of these people who are celebrated as edgy comics and more often than not what they're doing to to use a phrase of my late friend barry crimmins a great activist american comedian uh what they're actually doing is they're taking a rebel position while at the same time bolstering the oppressive status quo and i think you know when i love when i watch certain comics the generosity of my, my friend josie long for instance being a good example and joanna neary um the generosity they have on stage the fact that when people leave they have got more love inside them than when they came in that's what i like watching i i I find it very sad that again going back to that mean spiteful voices that get elevated so often is when comedy unites people because of a something else that they have disdain for and that's not to say that i haven't done plenty of comedy about that but now the older i've got the more i go I really want people to feel included and I want people to, you know, it's like all that anti-woke stuff that goes on. You think, God, do you, do, don't say anti-woke. Say what you really said. Do you remember when you used to, you know, mock all those people who went, it's political correctness gone mad? Well, now you're middle-aged and what you're actually saying is it's political correctness gone mad. Grow up, don't understand teenagers. That is how a society moves on. I'm interested to know what it's like working with stars who are almost stratospherically big. Like Brian Cox is obviously huge. Ricky Gervais is enormous. What's it like working with? I, mean, I I spend most of my life working with people who are far better known than I am. And when I'm on stage, I'm I, I sometimes present myself as a sidekick, or I'm just trying to get to know them and give them an opportunity to sort of express themselves and usually show their best side. What's it like for you? Because you're a hugely established name in your own right, and you're working with names such as Cox and Gervais. Do, do you compare yourself with them? What's the dynamic like? And, and no, how, um, how do you see yourself? I, I think I see myself in, in a very different world to them. I, uh, you know, when I, when I go into the arena world, it, I, 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 it's not a place that I'm thinking, and when will the arena be mine, all mine? I know I'm just there with that particular job for that particular day. And the place that I belong is in the small theatres, the strange memorial halls, the the little bookshops. And I think it allows me to have a very different relationship with people. I was, I was out in uh, New Zealand a couple of weeks ago and I was in Wellington. And I went to Weta. Yeah, I don't know if you know Weta, which is where, you know, they make incredible props and masks and animatronics for so many films, Lord of the Rings and Thor and all manner of other stuff. And I was chatting to Richard, who, with his wife, started Weta, and we were talking about the joy of talking to people who may well be your audience sometimes. Like Because in, in a way that, you know, Brian is so famous that he will probably be whisked away. He won't be talking to his audience. You know, he's, he's very he would be surrounded by people. Whereas in my small world, I can get to know 
people who are in the audience. And I often do. There's people who become very good friends. And um, and Richard was saying about the fact that he said, oh, yeah, we just have these two women staying who are just really big Lord of the Rings fans. So here's someone who with his wife has created that, you know, in, in the world of Lord of the Rings, people look on them with awe. But he also knows that um, he's a huge fan of Lord of the Rings. So he'll probably get on with most people who are huge fans of Lord of the Rings. You know, he was just lucky enough to end up and and talented enough to, uh, or brilliant enough to to end up working in that world. And I love that. I love the fact that, you know, the the, the relationships that I've got with certain people, the things that I've found out uh, from them. And in fact, I write a little bit in Bibliomaniac about, um, well, sadly enough, actually, there, there was uh, um, someone who I found out had died when I was on the tour and someone who was in all of my West Country gigs and often come up to London gigs. And she was great. And she was a teacher and she had a heart operation. And uh, um, unfortunately, she died uh, after the operation. And um, and then the person who's in that chapter who I talk about has died since as well. Uh, his name's Mick. And Mick was, I always, he always had a wide brimmed hat on quite a kind of gothy feel to the Nephilim looking person, big fan of Killing Joke. And I'm glad that I got to know him. And I was glad that I was able to, again, to place him in the book. If I knew he was ill and I kind of sometimes thought, you know what, I'm going to add an extra story about Mick because books are a wonderful place for people to stay living when you know when the and and it was lovely because his his wife uh who i also know angela came to the gig that i did in leeds about bibliomaniac and she was wearing mick's hat and i read a poem in memory of mick and and i loved that i'm able to have all those relationships you know it every now and again you get a little twinge of what if i was really famous and then you go i don't think it would suit me and also because for some famous people, I think they want to be famous because they imagine if they're being famous, then they'll somehow be different people. But it's a bit like, you know, when people say, oh, if we moved house, if we lived in another house, then I think we'd be happier. And then you move house and you realise that you brought yourself with it. And so, you know, it's not necessarily escape an escape. And, you know, I'm in a fortunate position where I can make a living. I Most of my costs are books and, and I can survive very well in this world. What do you mean most of your costs are books? Well, that's what, that's all I spend. I don't spend money on technology or anything like that. I'm always buying more books. Oh, I see what you mean. Actually, that's what you spend your money on. Talking about, and this isn't a question, but talking about becoming friends with people in your audience. I was interviewing Sir Trevor McDonald on the South Coast. And at the end, a young woman came up to me with her mother. And she had only gone with her mother because her stepfather hadn't been able to go. And she's now my wife. So there you go. Yeah. Well, that's beautiful. I mean, it's like we've got, there's there's a few people who've got married from from uh, meeting their partner at the Nine Letters of Carols for Curious People shows that I've done. And there's a, a, a few performers who met their partners when they were doing one of the weird variety shows that I put on. So I love, again, all of those connections. Are, to, to me, it is, I know it's the old EM Forster thing, which gets churned out all the time, but only connect that thing of just connecting with people and what they will also give back to you. Is is it's just brilliant. Now, I, I want to know about the differences for you as someone who does them between doing radio, so let's say the Infinite Monkey Cage with Brian Cox, and doing stage stuff. So when when there is an audience, however big or small, we've talked about the differences between big and small audiences. But the difference between doing radio and doing in person stuff, do they both give you pleasure in different ways? Yeah, I mean, I always worry with Infinite Monkey Cage because I know it's got a reputation. We've been running a long time. I've never, I'm I'm, I'm never blasé. I'm always thinking, right, how can we make sure, has has a good thing happened there? So, in fact, my inner monologue 
is, I think, very noticeable because I've got lots of directors in my head that are saying, oh, you need to get that person in there now. Oh, we've got to make sure we get that brilliant story about that 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 spider and that cannibalism thing. And, uh, oh, we probably need a gag here. So all of that's going on. Whereas when I'm actually performing live alone, uh, well, hopefully with an audience, I don't mean like, you know, they're, they're, when I'm, I'm solo, then um, I I think go into a separate state of, of, of manic intensity where all I'm doing is just creating, creating, creating. From up for and that's it. So I think that has, and and I think I used to have a lot. The, the inner voice was the the anxious inner voice was was a lot more apparent. I think one of the things that's changed it is, I mean, I you know jokingly saying, but true, you know, so the kind of meds and things like that, which have helped hush the anxiety voice. And I think being able to quieten the anxiety voice as well has given me an enormous amount of more energy. I think a lot of, you know, you don't realise until you find some way of, of lowering your anxiety how much energy it saps. So when I'm live on stage or, or wherever I might be, I just go off on one. And and it's as you know, every now and again I'll go. Oh, I can't think of what to say next. Okay, I'll just do a story that I know in my head. But I always love that experience that afterwards people will say, um, "Oh, I love that story." And I'll go, "Oh, I don't think I did that." And they went, "Yes, you did." And I don't even remember that I've told a story. And and I think that my favourite bits of Monkey Cage still. It's not a very. We deliberately don't have a very hard and fast plan. We meet about two three hours before the show. I will normally have done some reading about the subject and checked up a little bit about the specialities of the people scientists we have on. So I'll fill my brain with as much stuff. And then once we start, there's not a hard and fast script or anything like that. There's there's our intentions that we had at five in the evening, which are very often long lost by 7.35. And of course, as you made clear, you, you are performing in front of an audience with the infinite monkey cage, but it's just different from when you're up on stage on your own, you're not being recorded. Well, and, actually, and that's an interesting point that you make there, because the one thing that you really sometimes have to depress is, of course, the gag brain is making gags at almost every sentence that is said. And sometimes you go, this is a good gag, but actually it will ruin the scientific explanation. And that is a very, very important part of the show as well. So you can sometimes see, like, especially if someone like Ross Noble's on and we're both looking at each other, we can see that we're making things in our head and we're kind of going, no, 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 not yet, not yet, not yet. not. And then sometimes you have to jettison gags. So you go, oh, that was two minutes ago now. It's a beautiful gag. Shall I say it? No, that's that's last year's news. So that's an interesting part of the, the change in the dynamic. Now, another difference I'm interested in exploring is that the difference between when you're just being, I say just, when you are being first and foremost a stand-up comic, stand-up comedian, so people are paying because they want Robin Ince to make them laugh. And then when you're, say, doing a book tour or when you're being interviewed by me on stage you know, about a book or you're going to these, you're going to the bookshops. My sense is that when you're in the bookshops, you're not there first and foremost as a stand-up comic. You're there as someone who's got great stories to tell, someone who wants to talk about books, someone who wants to talk about your writing and, and science and ideas and you know, almost riffing off one idea of your own and moving on to another. Am I right in that? And also, is there is there that difference between you when you put yourself out there explicitly as a stand-up comic and when you're doing something slightly different? Not as consciously as you might imagine. What I want every show to be, whatever it is, is I want it to have a sense of celebration and, as I was saying, that inclusiveness and all of those things. What I do notice is when I just did a little book tour about Bibliomaniac, that if I am in a bookshop or, you know, Memorial Hall or whatever for the bookshop, I... I don't have every now and again, if you place me on a stage, which is like a comedy club stage, I know that I go slightly more into uh, manic joke phase. But I also know 
that I'm still allowed to have periods of time where there are no jokes. But it does slightly change. If you place me in spotlights with red velvet curtains behind me, which is exactly what this venue had, there is something innate within me that goes, it's showtime. But actually, it's always showtime. I mean, it's one of those things that I love doing, which is I very rarely am not on stage before the gig starts. Uh, I just kind of, I quite like just being there or wandering around. There's no kind of grand, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome i've kind of been mucking around already i like having conversations with people before they're actually sat down all of that stuff so i think that also removes some of the kind of conceits of performance could you in your own words tell us about the power of radio i I presented my own show on lbc for four years and there was this extraordinary intimacy there was this incredible it was an incredible privilege and, and means of communicating with people. And, and clearly you were talking to a lot of people, or so you hoped, at the same time as wanting to connect with people in, in, in their beds, in their in their living mm. rooms. Particularly in the pandemic, I felt a huge sense of responsibility in those first months of the pandemic that I was on late at night and, and people might be lonely, they might be scared and you know, you felt even though LBC is a commercial broadcaster, you felt some sort of some sort of urge towards public service. But radio isn't just this wonderful medium. I've also worked quite a lot in TV, and I love working with pictures. I love I love the creativity, the visual creativity that TV enables. But there's something to me that's very very special about radio. Yeah, I think the removal of pictures is because it means that you're doing a lot more of the work. You, Your imagination is creating the pictures, whatever the discussion might be about. And I mean, for, for Infinite Monkey Cage, I think one of the important things is a lot of the ideas we discuss, you would more than likely just be reading on your own in, in a book. But when it's on radio, we very often... we often get communication from families who listen to it so it's grandmother it's daughter uh it's you know and and then the and then the grandson and they're all listening to it together and they're all having a conversation afterwards uh, and these ideas as i said are very often ideas that would normally be in the privacy of your own head occasionally popping up from the book and going oh i've just found out a thing about the event horizon i didn't know so i think that has a very that bit that and, and also that thing as you said the solitary thing as well that sense of feeling that you are part of a conversation, the need that people have, which I love really, which is very often people will get in contact with our social media and say, can you remind me of who that book was? Or can you remind me of what was that idea called? Or can you, and all of that again, whereas I think television is is a medium where you can just sit back and you, you can slightly disconnect from it. It's all just flowing towards you. It's flooding. And that's not to say there is not, you know, remarkable piece of television, but that bit of that you are meeting, if not halfway, not far off halfway sometimes, your mind and the minds and words of those people in the radio. And we've talked about, or you've talked about the negativity that there's some that there feels there is at times, perhaps all the time in our society and beyond. And social media can, of course, amplify that and be a big part of that. But social media can, as you've just intimated, then be a positive thing, can't it? And it can, when it's at its best, or in one one incarnation, one form of it being its best, it can mean that someone such as yourself, who has a big public profile, who people pay to read or to go and watch or to listen to, that they can reach out to you and they can show their interest to you and and in you and ask you peripheral questions or things that they think are important that they'd like to have your answer on. And when you have your when you have the time, you're able to answer them. So there is good stuff, isn't there? Oh, the great. oh, I mean, I think actually there's and also the more 
that you think about what you're putting out there, the more you can control whether you get loads of negative voices or or positive voices. I mean, like, for instance, I've had, I, I've, I've sometimes said some kind of uh, positive things uh, about, for instance, the trans movement and about inclusiveness. And as you probably know, you only have to say something very mild in terms of being inclusive, inclusive about the trans community and you will get thousands of voices, you know, falling all over themselves to, you know, just spiteful and very, you know vicious um and uh and i just never really noticed them but what i did notice was people coming up to me at festivals and saying uh my daughter's trans and she's glad that someone's you know in with any kind of profile i haven't got a huge public profile and you and you and you find out that it's a it can be a very fake world once you start believing the negative voices are the definition of any particular movement or worry or whatever it is then you beginning to lose your humanity because you're removing their humanity too and it's a real battle you know and, and but i i think i've found especially now i find it predominantly a positive thing I found it very positive in terms of talking to people who are neurodivergent as well, who sometimes reached out uh, for stuff uh, at so many different levels. I, I think it can be a force for good. But what we need to do is we need to stop when we're when we're furious with someone for being an asshole. The better thing to do is put up something positive than actually. Do you know what I mean? So it's like, for instance, Lenny Henry gets attacked a great deal. Um, people might pretend it's because they don't like his work. But let's face it. I think there's a reason that Lenny Henry, and I think a lot of it is is racism. And so when I see Lenny Henry trending, I will normally put up something like, oh, I just read Lenny Henry's second volume of autobiography. It's such an interesting story to, to, to hear and to read. So, you know, trying to find those ways where people that are trending and, and it's all an attack on them going, well, I wonder if I, I'm just going to put up something nice. I'm going to put up something that says that rather than being angry with the voices that are attacking Lenny Henry, which is quite an understandable thing, I said, I'll just put up something nice about Lenny Henry. Where does the creativity come from in you? Do you know what? I, I, it's it's perpetual. It's just this thing, which is, and the older I've got, I think the more it is in my head as well. I, I think it's now I'm really driven, as I, I, I say, I, I, I'm so driven by, uh, I've always, well, no, do you know what it probably is? I always really want to make people happier. And it's something that worries me a great deal. And that's where a lot of the anxiety came from as well, which is from a very early age. Uh, when, I, when I was very little, I was in a big car accident and uh, I thought it had been my fault. I was three years old and uh, my mum was in a coma for a while and, and was badly injured. And of course, when you're a little kid, you think it's your fault. And because uh, you only have to, you know, if you if you pick up a glass one end of the room and some books fall down the other end of the room, you know, when you're three years old, you think everything is connected in that way. And so I do know that, you know, if I do a bit of psychobabble on myself, I was always worried about her happiness and all of those things that come from that. And um, and I do just I get tremendous joy in knowing that people are happier you know it's when i watch rick mail and i see the fact that rick mail he never shortchanged an audience that chutzpah that energy that you know that just the delight of the stupidity to watch something like that is just filled with so much joy so i think that's where and also because i, I want to understand things and so by understand somewhat sometimes to understand something you need to write a show about it or write a book about it or i find a so someone asked me the other day they said you don't have any hobbies i was going why do i need a hobby because a hobby is for people who've got a job which they might not particularly like so they want to go off bird watching at the weekend and do something else my hobby is my life which is just i want to find out stuff i want to build stuff i want people to you know uh go on a journey with them as well i love it when a scientist comes up to me or, or anyone comes up to me 
and says, you know, that idea you said there, I think you've misunderstood it. You know, that, that bit of joy. Whereas I think when I was younger, I'd have probably just immediately had umbrage about that. You know, what you want to do is Which, of course, again, a lot of us, we, we go straight for the defence mechanism. Do you find yourself going on a journey with your audiences? In other words, is some of what you do about finding answers in the process of trying to give other people answers, finding answers for yourself? And if so, where where does this curiosity come from? And you talked about the creativity just then, but where does this immense curiosity, this interestedness come from? Do you know what? I don't know. Maybe it's because I don't actually believe in anything. I don't have any kind of, you know, I'm not a, I, I, I don't have any particular faith. I don't have, I think, a political doctrine. You know, I have, have beliefs about, you know, the importance of building fairer societies, more equal societies, but I don't, so I don't have a doctrine. So maybe that's why I just love finding, you know, it means that everything can keep changing because it's not a threat to me. You know, if, if, if the, the, if things get disproved, like if I did say, if suddenly it turned out there was very much a vision, god there was some god who showed there uh I, I don't think it would mean that everything collapsed for me i don't think it would mean the end of everything in the same way so i can keep finding out different things about the nature of our evolution uh about the nature of art and creativity um sometimes they you know they will bump up against something that i thought was true and might not be true but it is because i'm i'm doubtful in uh, a universe filled with doubt and that allows me to approach so many different things would you like there to be a visual god do you know what I, I I like some of the you know I was going around the um, uh, Museum of Asian Civilizations in Singapore. In fact, with Brian Cox, we go there every time that we're on tour. And um, it is really when you go on the second floor are all these different rooms showing you different religions, and you see these uh, different icons that are filled with sex and mischief and evil and delight. And then you go into the Christian section and you see someone who's died for your sins and you see instantaneous guilt and you see this. And every time we go, what an awful story. Out there are these, you know, almost, kind of, you know, goblins and elves and mischief and Ganesh and whatever else it might be. And so those gods, those 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 gods of, of, of mischief, I think I could probably handle that. Yeah. I think the idea that there is just someone who's made us and feels that we've been a tremendous letdown, which is a terrible, terrible influence, I think, on a patriarchal society, that that would be very unsatisfactory. What for you, then, is the meaning of life and, and how central to that meaning, if you've found one, is love? Well, I think we'd, we were talking before we start recording this about uh, Terry Hall, who who died two two days before we were recording this, and uh, you know Terry Hall. Uh, it's been reported his final words were "love, love, love," and that's what he would say at the end of each gig: "love, love, love." And and I really think the older I've got, the more that I've realised that. That, but there's a great Paul Eddington. Have you ever seen that interview Paul Eddington did before, just before he died? The actor who was in Yes, Prime Minister and The Good Life and all of that, and he was a Quaker. And when he was asked how he'd like to be remembered, he said, I'd like to be remembered that he didn't do too much harm. And I think that in itself is, first of all, what a great th that bit of, you know, when I look at some of those comics who do all that edgy material and I think about the fact that it's made people feel more scared to be in the world and more lonely and more uncertain, and, you know, really like kind of, and I think, you know, no, don't, don't do that. It, it's, a, it's a nice thing to be to be fondly remembered until you then disappear you know what because all of us will disappear at some point there are a few names that remain for thousands of years and probably in no way are they similar to their physical actuality but that bit that when you go people go oh that empty chair is so very empty today is that means that you've had some effect 
I want to ask you just a little bit more, uh, wrap up maybe one or two questions, cheating in, into a bundle of a question here about the infinite monkey cage, because for those who haven't listened to it or, and, and haven't experienced it, explain to them why they should. And as you said earlier, it's it's a show that, is, that has endured for quite a long time. And yeah, we're up to about 170 episodes now. It's ridiculous. Which is extraordinary. So how did it come about that you and Brian Cox paired up for it? Well, we we did. I was asked to do do a pilot as a guest with three scientists, and the pilot didn't do very well. No one really liked it. But um, Sash, who's been our producer for the whole time as well, very much the third, you know, uh, part of the Infinite Monkey Cage, she saw that there was something in the way that Brian and me chatted, and so I I think it's because I I don't think we dumbed down, but I think we also accept that some ideas can be very very difficult. We're not trying to give people a simple aunt and, and just go, and that is quantum mechanics summed up for you, module three. You know, what we're trying to do is create something that will excite you enough that an excitement is very important, that it will excite you enough that you go, oh, do you know what? I want to find out more about that. And I, sh- I should go look in the local paper, see if I can buy a secondhand telescope or a microscope or whatever it might be. So I think that excitement and I think the fact that it's it, we it's very genuine. You know, we we really are fascinated in every single thing that we talk about uh it really is exciting and i love watching the guests because sometimes you know the guests have been used to one thing i always say beforehand i say don't give answers in the way that you would give answers if you had to give answers for tv where you know it's going to be cut down to 30 seconds go off on one for as long as you want whatever you're comfortable with explore and sometimes especially american guests you can see them initially kind of going okay right i I, i'm gonna do and then they see that we're just dicking around and they're like oh wow this is a an environment where the play of science is part of it because that's where you know a lot of the greatest ideas of humanity they start with playing around dicking about looking out the window daydreaming do you understand everything that you talk about or do you wrestle with something because you're not a scientist brian cox is a scientist do you, when you're when you're confronted with a, a scientific idea do you sort of see brian's mind working in a different way to your own Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't have any deep scientific understanding. I'm far too much of a flippity jibber. You know, I'm someone who just leaps from thing to thing to thing. And I think that's one reason as well that Brian and me work well. Is, is Brian actually, go, I don't know how your mind works because mine's quiet quite a lot of the time. So he's actually, he has a quiet mind that then goes, oh, physics. Oh, hungry. Oh, sleep. That's kind of his, whereas mine is going, you know, and and I think that's, so I don't have a deep understanding of a lot of those ideas. And I think that's another thing that we try and underline, which is do not feel you failed. If you watch the the recent tour that I've done with Brian, if you watch that two-hour show about black holes and you did not understand it all and you did not understand the Penrose diagrams, do not then retreat away and say, I don't have a brain for it. Here is someone who spent 30 years dealing with these ideas, summing them up in two hours. Realise that each one is just a little seed and some of them might start growing inside you and some of them won't grow inside you. But the joy is to just play the game of it all. It's not about understanding everything deeply. So I don't. There's a huge number of ideas that I understand while I'm talking about them, but a week later, I've entirely forgotten what they mean. Has the nature of your work, Robin, which is sort of self-employed and self-generating to a large extent, if not entirely, has that helped you sort of be a family man as well? Like, How do you juggle parenthood, being a husband with work? Oh, that's probably an answer from from my family rather than me. I mean, one of the things that I do try as much as possible is to make sure that I'm not working during school holidays, things like that. So it's like, you know, there's and and my son, who's who's nearly 15 now, you know, he he knows that the downside is sometimes I'm away for a while. But the upside is 
I can take six weeks off in the summer and you know, I might do a few festivals and he'll come along to the festival with me and we'll have an adventure at the festival. So I think, and I think I've got better at that. I hope over time, that realization that like I don't really have a social life. I don't go to showbiz parties. I don't do any of those things. If it's not creative work, more often than not, I say no to it. So when I'm not working, I'm, I'm at home. And I and I and I I'm I'm not bothered about going out boozing. I'm not bothered about all of the glitzy bits of it. I'm interested to know because at the very beginning we were talking about what your tour of Britain might have taught you. What has traveling the world in the last few months opened your eyes to? Oh, that's so. It is. I mean, the the Asian Civilizations Museum is one of my favorites, just in terms of its religious side. I think one thing that can constantly I get uh, my eyes are open to more is the way that some people can have some beliefs which they hold very dearly, but it does not mean that their mind is entirely closed off to other inquisitive and doubtful things. So I think that's something I continue to learn in every territory that 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 we play, uh, which is there are people who are able to believe again, going back to the gods in in a god or some gods, and they're able to keep that in one part of their mind and they're able to have another part of their mind which can look at the ideas of the big bang and evolution by natural selection and i think that's that's what i learn in every territory in in some ways i don't think there is a deep education that comes to me from so much travel because in the end i'm always gonna in some ways there's going to be a slightly similar thing about the people i meet but I mean, I do love it. Whenever, whenever I'm on tour, like New Zealand, we only had one week in New Zealand. We were doing four cities, and every spare hour that I have, I get lost. I I, I go see see a weird named secondhand bookshop. I mark it on a map, put the map in my head, start walking, and then find out what I find as I get lost in the town. And I'm again, not- I always meet people who've got you know because uh, once you meet one person, like like Richard at, at, at Weta, they'll recommend someone else who'll recommend someone else who'll say, "Oh, do you know what? You should if you're going to Christchurch, you should meet the uh, the um, art doctor. She's really interesting." Oh, okay, I'll go to that. You know, all of those things. An ultimate question is: Do you have any special skills or talents that we don't know about, but that we really should? Nope, none at all. Absolutely devoid of any talent whatsoever. I, I, uh, you know, there's nothing that is hidden under a bushel. Tragically, uh, everything you see is all you're going to get. Final question then. When you're not working, I know work is to a large extent your life because it's so involved and life feeds off work and work feeds off life and so forth. When you're not working, sort of working, working, and when you're not being a dad or a husband and you're not looking around secondhand bookshops, what, what really excites you? What do you absolutely love? What what is what is your sort of go what are your go-to passions or interests? Is it theatre? Is it music? Is it is it sport? What is it? Oh, music is, you know, that that thing of having a transcendent experience. I made a little list the other day of thinking of, you know, uh, uh, the Flaming Lips being one of them, Polyphonic Spree, PJ Harvey, uh, Nick Cave, Anna Calvi. That bit of, I mean, it's one of the things that I love is when I can play a festival and I have three days off so I can go and do a show and then I just, and, and that is where I can get most lost. And that is that bit that when I really hit sometimes, you know, some of the more negative thoughts when you're dealing with those is uh, music is the thing that is... Is more than likely to in some way kind of shield me at that point or create some kind of marginal shield. Robin, it's been such a delight to have you answer my 20 questions. And just because we, amongst the joyousness of it and the interest, because we talked about one or two difficult things or challenging things, I, I like to sometimes give out the Samaritans number to people because it's really good for people to know that there are people out there to help. 116123. Robin, thank you so much. That's such a great thing to give out the Samaritans number. It's interesting. I was chatting with someone the other day who came to a gig and they 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 said, 
I saw something that said that you've started to deal with the anxiety. How have you done it? And then he started to apologize, said, oh, I'm sorry to bring it up. I said, no, be, you should be sorry if you felt you were unable to. You know that thing where uh, I, I, I think I've talked to a lot of therapists and stuff like that, and a lot of them say, you know, we're still a long way in this society from really being able to um, just open up. And and so I think that's a great thing you do at the end of uh, end of your show. Thank you.